Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First City Church. Thank you for being here today. My name is Rick. I'm one of the ministers here along with you in Pensacola. And we're in this series called Transformed, you know, how God changes us. So, hello, good morning. It's good to see you guys. How long has it been since you've been here? Too long is right. So y'all are now living in Atlanta. Man, God bless you. So it's good to see all of you today. And, uh, and in this series called Transform, what we've talked about is when I look at my current state of where I am and I look at the ideal state where I want to be in the Lord, I see that there's this gap. And I begin to wonder, can God make a difference? Can he really transform me? And, and when I begin to think, yes, maybe he can, do I want him to? How will I do it? There are things about that that just scare me to death. There are things about that that excite me. What I know for sure is that I don't want to stay where I am. Anybody there? Okay. So then there is something inside us that says, okay, I want to be transformed by God. And what does that look like? Now, the one thing about those of us who are human and we live just one day at a time because we can't predict the future, and when we look back at the past, there's way too much that embarrasses us, frightens us, wants to get past, that we want to be in control. We want to, we want to control. Uh, God, okay, I'll, I'll do it, but I need to know where we're going. I need to know what we're doing. Anybody in here besides me who's just like, man, I really like to be in control. And if God's going to lead me someplace I can't predict, and it's too big of a step for me to take. So in this message and in this series, what we're trying to do is say, Really, all God asked us to do was one thing, and that was rest in Him. He made it so easy for us that He's like, life is going to get very busy, and you're going to be pulled in a lot of different directions, and everybody is going to have a new agenda for you. Television commercials are going to tell you if you'll just buy this product, your life will be happier. And every institution that's a learning institution, whatever, high school, junior high, university, businesses, they're all like, boy, we'll all be happier if you'll just do this, go there, buy this, do this thing. And so it's like the world is going to pull at you and pull at you and pull at you and pull at you. And God is saying... If you'll get alone with me, I will restore your soul. And what the Hebrew writer called the Sabbath rest. So there still remains this Sabbath rest for us. Where we get to this place where God removes us from every, all the distractions, all the dissonance, all the noise, all the conflict, and just pulls us back to where we find this breathing place. And we're amazed at how that seems to be outside in nature. And remember last week we talked about the study from Stanford that said people who walk in urban settings versus people who walk in natural settings. Walking is good. Physically, you can, it can do you know, for you exactly what it needs to in either but spiritually, emotionally, if you get in nature, just in, the nat just in a natural setting, away from the noise, just in the trees and down a path, it said something happens to us 
that brings us more to a place of peace. And in their study, they found that it moved people away from being depressed and stressed. And they're still studying, trying to find out why is that the case. But somehow God wired us to whenever we can get alone and without the instructions and be with him. And so last week we looked at five or six different times when Jesus, the Bible says, he went up to the mountain or he went out to the wilderness to be alone with God. And if anybody could have gotten along without spending alone time with God, it would have been Jesus. And yet he is leading us into this place of rest with God. And so we have this graph. I'll show it to you here in just a second. But when we begin to emerge from resting in the Lord, then God wants to transform us. Joshua had spent a lot of time with God. And leading God, being alone with God, he was in the wilderness with God for 40 years while a whole generation of people died off. Then he went across the uh, Kadesh Barnea and into the promised land, led the people, and at the end of his life, he's talking, and one of the things that he says is this, chapter 22, verse 5, be very careful to keep the commandment and the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. And this is what he gave you, to love the Lord your God. To walk in obedience to him. To keep his commands. To hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And what Joshua is saying is, man, we fought many battles. We've, we've run into this brand new country, land, flowing with milk and honey. Because this is where God led us. We've been at times where it was war, and we've been at times when God didn't speak, and there was peace, and there was silence. We've been in times when we've been obedient to God, and we've been in times when we ran from God. But at the end of the day, as I look back over my life, the quiet whisper of the Lord says, I love you, and I'm asking, do you love me? Will you be obedient to me? Will you obey my commands? Will you give me your heart and your soul? He's like, that's, that's the real question. In fact, when you start reading all of Scripture, one of the descriptions that's written down for people who really, really love God and the person that God says, man, now that's it. One of the descriptions, one of the phrases that came to be known, I'll show it to you in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And in one of the Gospels, he also included, and with all of your mind. And so anytime the Bible describes somebody who really gave God their whole heart, like Caleb and Hezekiah and David and other people, said, man, he really loved God with all of his heart. Hezekiah, no king in Judah before him or after him loved God with all his heart and obeyed all of his commands like Hezekiah did. And it's like, it's just a description. Jesus talked about it. That's the greatest thing somebody could say about you. That at the end of your life, tomorrow we're going to have uh, a funeral service in this place for a man named Don Scully. Don Scully was a member here. And some of you may remember him 
uh, back in the day, he loved welcoming people on Sundays. And when he got older and it was harder for him to stand up, he would sit in a chair under an umbrella out in the parking lot. And as people would come into the parking lot, he would stand up and he'd say, Welcome to First City. It's so good to see you. Here's a man who gave his heart to God, and it showed. He's one where you could say he loved the Lord God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, and with all of his mind. What would they say about you? Could they say that? This is rhetorical. Could they say that about you? That you're someone who really wants to love God with all of your heart. And so in this transformation process, here's our, here's our graph, and these are the layers, the steps, whatever you want to call them, of going from where we've been to where we're headed, and it begins with this foundation of Sabbath rest. And when we get alone with God, He begins to speak to us. In the reading of His Word, you know, right? The, the Paul in Romans says that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And so the more you get into the Word of God, the more your trust in Him, your faith in Him is going to grow. And as you read it, you're going to read, this is how I'm supposed to live. And then I look at how I really live, and I see the gap. This is how I'm supposed to talk. This is how I often talk, and there's a gap. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what my heart is supposed to reflect, and there's a gap. And once I see my eyes become open to the gap, it leads me to this place of repentance, to this place to say, I am not who I want to be. I am not who God has called me to be. But I, but I desire to be there. And so that leads me into prayer. It leads me to say, Lord God, I am, I am so sorry. I long to become everything you dreamed of when you knit me together in my mother's womb. I long to be everything that you created me to be. And so the first three steps on this graph really is just spending alone time with God, soaking in the things of God, carving out time to listen to God, worshiping the Lord, the thirsty 30, 10 minutes of worship, 10 minutes of scripture reading, 10 minutes of prayer, just spending time with God, letting, and, and which leads me to, whew, I, there's some things I need to change, which leads me to, Lord God, help me to change. The first three are personal, quiet in your own personal time with God. The last two, this total stewardship and community accountability, have to do with the way it shows itself in public. And so now that I'm going to go public, now that I'm, I'm going to emerge from this time alone with God, who am I going to become? Who am I? Can you tell that I've spent time with Jesus. That's what they said about the apostles. Remember that? In Acts chapter 2, they're like, man, you can tell they've spent time with Jesus. Well, okay. I want that to be said about me. So I went through the Bible and I started looking at all the different characters and I kind of enjoyed my Bible study this past week as I'm just finding, okay, I want to see when the people were living the way they were living and then they went into this alone time with God. And as they emerged from that time with God, who did they become? What happened to them? So I only have time to give you six examples today. And so I just chose these six. If you were to go through it, you'd probably choose six others. But there's so many you can choose from. Let's start with Jacob. I'm, I'm really intrigued by Jacob's story because Jacob 
was the younger brother of two twin boys, born at the same time. Esau was born first, and Jacob, as he was born, he was holding on to the heel of Esau in their birth, in the delivery. And so they grew up. Esau was a man's man. He was strong, and he was big. He was an outdoorsman. He was hairy. Esau knew he was a man. Jacob knew Esau was a man. And for whatever reason, Jacob grew up believing he was not a man. He just, inside him, he, he never thought he was enough. And so he manipulated everything to get attention and to find self-worth. And he, was a, he, he would lie, he would do things, and his mother made things worse. But she tried to cover for him and tried to help him and she wanted him to feel better and, and it just, it was a disaster. And so when you look inside their home, you would think, oh my goodness, this is so dysfunctional. But, but God wanted Jacob to know that he was valuable. So God would come to him. He came to him one time, let him go to sleep and God showed him, you know, just some beautiful stuff and I've, I'm choosing you. But he still didn't believe it. He still manipulated. His brother came in one day and he was all hungry and he deceived him out through a bowl of soup of the family blessing, the birthright. And then he allowed his mom to talk him into just breaking apart the whole family. And he stole his brother's blessing and he was deceptive and he had to leave home and things were so bad. And Esau wanted to kill him and Jacob took off running. And the deceiver goes into a foreign land and he just tries to find out who he is. And God's spending time with him the whole time he's there just trying to teach him that he can trust him. He falls in love with a girl and then the, he is the deceiver but he ends up being deceived by his father-in-law. And his family starts to grow until the day that God calls him to go home. And God says, it's time for you. I want you to go back to the home of your mother and father and, and the land where Esau lives. And Jacob is scared to death. And he doesn't know that he wants to go. And so he sends word ahead to his brother. And he offers him a whole bunch of gifts. And he says, hey, uh, I'm coming home. And, uh, and I've... And, God has been good to me, and so I've got a bunch of stuff I want you to have. Just trying to manipulate his brother. Well, word comes back to him. Esau said he can't wait to see you. In fact, he's getting on his horse, and he's coming to you, and he's bringing 400 soldiers with him. And Jacob's scared. He thinks he's coming to kill me. And so he continues to manipulate. He's not a man. In fact, he uses human shields to protect himself. He takes all of his children and puts them up at the front. And he's like, if he's going to come and he's mad, he'll have to kill all my children, and maybe that'll soften his heart. And then he puts his wives. He said, then he'll have to kill all my wives and steal all of my animals. And then he put himself at the very back, just trying to protect himself. And it comes... Close to the time, he's already on the way back. He knows probably the next day I'm going to see my brother. And he sends all of his family, his children, his, his, his wives, 
all of his animals, all that stuff, ahead on the other side of the river, and he stays alone in the camp. And the Bible says that the angel of the Lord, known as a strange man, comes walking into this empty camp, just him and Jacob. And he doesn't even say anything. He just grabs him, and the two start fighting. And they fight all night, all night. And Jacob's not about to give it up because he's never been man enough his whole life. And it all comes out in the fight. And he refuses to give up and to quit. He, he wants to, to be a man so bad. And, the, and this angel of the Lord speaks to him. What is your name? As if he didn't know. He says, my name is Jacob. And then he delivers this line to him that just makes me cry. Your name has been Jacob, but from now on, you're going to be known as Israel, for you have wrestled with the Lord and won. And the angel left him, and Jacob worshiped God. He said, I have seen the Lord face to face and lived to tell the story. And he crosses over the river and he walks beside his wives and he goes in front of them. They're like, what is he doing? And he sees all of his children and he walks in front of his children and he walks in front of all of his animals and all of his stuff and he gets to the front of the line and he meets his brother face to face and he said, I am so sorry for what I did to you. And Esau grabbed him and hugged him. And said, I have longed to see you again. Welcome home. He was changed. He was one way. And then he had this encounter with God. And he emerged from that encounter different. Now his story is very different than Esther. Esther's story is that she was this beautiful young teenage girl living in a land where she was a slave. And her people were, the the Jewish nation, the Jewish people did not have a a lot of voice in this kingdom. And Artaxerxes, we called him King Xerxes, and they were in the capital city of Susa. He made a decision one day that he no longer wanted his wife. And he was, she embarrassed him in front of some people while he was drunk. And so he got rid of her and had a beauty contest. We're going to bring all the most beautiful women to the palace and we're going to take them through a year of beauty treatments and whoever's the most beautiful, whoever the king likes, that's who he's going to choose as a queen. Well, guess who was one of the beauties that was chosen? Esther. Guess who was the one that he chose to be the queen? Esther, this young teenage girl whose parents had died And she was raised by her uncle Mordecai. And she's scared to death. She doesn't know what to do. But Mordecai hangs out over on the side and comes over by the wall. And he just lets her know everything's okay. Everything's okay. God is with you. And then a plot comes up to kill all of God's people. And this wicked Haman is leading the plot. And Mordecai goes and he lets Esther know. Esther You've got to say something to the king or we're all going to be killed. And she's like, I can't say anything to the king. He hasn't called me in to see me in a long time. 
And if I go and try to present myself in front of the king, the law says, if I present myself, all he has to do is turn his head. And they, will, they would put a bag over their head, take them out, and execute them. She said, I will be killed. And Mordecai said, Esther, listen, God will take care of you. You trust that or you don't. And who knows? Maybe you came into this position for just this time. She's like, I'm scared. I know. So she said, do me a favor. You go and pray and fast for me for three days, day and night. I and my maids will do the same thing. And at the end of that time, I will go and present myself to the king. And if I die, I die. I want you to notice that when she said, I'm going to go away and fast, she didn't say, I'm going to go away and fast and figure out what it is I'm supposed to do. She said, I'm going to go away and fast so that I will have the courage to do what God is calling me to do. And she did. And at the end of three days, she went in before the king, and he welcomed her. He said, tell me what's on your heart. Ask whatever you want. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. She could have traded the message of God for riches, and she didn't do it. And she said, there's this awful plot from this wicked Haman, and she rescued all of God's people. It's a dramatic story and a really fun one. Read the book of Esther. Here she was, scared young girl, living as an orphan with her, with her uncle Mordecai. And God called her to be something wonderful, and she emerged out of this time with God, which is a very different story than Gideon. Now, God didn't find Gideon in a palace. God found Gideon hiding away in a basement. And Gideon, when God found him, he said, hey, Gideon, Gideon, where are you? I got something I want you to do. And Gideon emerges and says, oh, not me. You got the wrong guy. I'm the least in my family, the least family in our clan, the least clan in the tribe, the least tribe in all of Israel. I'm the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. Why would you want to talk to somebody like me? God's like, you got that all wrong. You're, you're the one I've been looking for all this time. You're going to help me free our people from the Midianites. And he just kind of laughed. He's like, God, you got the wrong person. God tried to talk him into it. And he said, well, if this is real, God, just let me test you. Please let me test you. Tell you what, God, I got this fleece. And he throws it on the ground. I'm going to go to bed. And when I get up in the morning, I'm going to come out. And if it's okay with you, would you make the fleece wet and all the ground dry? So he gets up and he comes out. And sure enough, you know, the fleece is wet and all the ground's dry. And he's like, okay, maybe I got that. Maybe I got it backwards. Maybe the ground is always dry. Tell you what, if it's okay with you, God, this time make all the ground wet, but the fleece dry. Gets up the next morning, and sure enough, all the ground is wet, and the fleece is dry. And he's like, God, surely you've still got the wrong guy. God says, nope. I want you to go assemble an army, gather them all together. So he got in front of all the army and he says, God sent me to you. And God says, okay, now now what? He says, well, 
send everybody home that's scared. And so he says, hey, if you're scared, we're going to go to fight. And if you're scared, it's okay. You can go home. And 10,000 of them went home. And, and God says, oh, you still got too many. Said, what do you mean you got too many? The Midianites have more camels than we can count, much less soldiers. And God's like, take them all down to the river and watch the way they drink. Those who just put their face down in the water carelessly, send them home. Those who bring the water up while their eyes are on the horizon, that's who we want. And he said, okay. So he took them all. He did it, 300 men. He's like, God, where are we going to find some swords? Oh, you don't need a sword. <laughs> I'm going to give you a lantern and a bugle horn. We're going to go to war with that. And if you're still scared, get your companion, and I want you to go at night over to the Midianite Army camp and just go down and, and just go spy, just secretly go over there, and you're going to overhear a conversation, and you'll know that I'm with you. And he did. And he and his companion go over, and they're quiet. They hide behind a tent, and they hear some guys out by the fire. And, well, I have this dream and this piece of bread comes rolling into our camp and next thing you know all of us are dead and somebody says I know the meaning of that that means Gideon is going to bring an army and they're going to destroy all of us and Gideon's like how did they even know my name and out of all of this time testing God being with God God are you sure God are you sure God are you sure he emerges and leads 300 trusting soldiers into a huge victory by God's help. They, you know, move the baskets, they hold up the lanterns, they blow, they shout, yay! Midianites are all afraid and they kill each other. And then Gideon chases them and he here, this scared guy hiding in the basement, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I've never been good enough. Spends time with God and emerges as a powerful warrior. His story is different than Zacchaeus. I love Zacchaeus because he's a wee little man. And Zacchaeus heard about Jesus. But he's been marginalized. The church kicked him out because he wasn't good enough. Nope. We don't accept tax collectors in our church or all the other people that you hang out with. And so all of these marginalized people who were told you're not good enough for our church hung out over at Zacchaeus' house. But there was something about all of them that wanted more. And Zacchaeus was one of them. And he heard Jesus was different. And he wanted to go check it out himself. So there's a parade. Jesus is coming into town. The streets are lined up. So many people, the wee little man couldn't see. So he climbs up in a sycamore tree to get a good view. And I don't know where the parade was supposed to end. I only know where it did end. At the sycamore tree. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, get out of that tree. I am hungry. And I want to go to your house. And Zacchaeus is like, you don't want to come to my house. All the people who've been kicked out of church are at my house. And I'm just afraid that's a crowd 
Lord, that's not good enough for people like you. He's like, come on, Zacchaeus, let's go to your house. I am hungry. And in the time that Jesus spent with Zacchaeus in his house, and Zacchaeus just watched the way that Jesus interacted with all these people who never felt like they were good enough to be in the church. And they watched the graciousness of Jesus just pour over all of them and bless all of them. And he emerged and said, Lord, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll repay them. I'll give them back four times whatever I've stolen from anybody. I want to be an honest, trustworthy man of your kingdom. Simple alone time with God. And God transitioned, transformed this young man. Who's different from Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a powerful man. Nicodemus was a ruler. Nicodemus had people who reported to him. Very important job. And it's so important that all of the people around him were having a plot to kill Jesus. But he wanted to know more. He was curious. But he knew if I go and I see Jesus, if I tell anybody I want to talk to Jesus, I'll lose my job. In fact, not only will I lose my job, I'll lose everything. And so he waited, waited, waited. And secretly, one night, he found Jesus alone in a secret quiet place. And Nicodemus came to him and said, can you tell me more? I don't, I don't understand. Well, Nicodemus... How can a man be born again? You know, unless he's born again. How, how can he see the kingdom of God? He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus just spent this alone time with him, just talking to him about rebirth and transformation and freedom and new life that's different than the way it had been given to him. And it intrigued him so much that he secretly wanted to know more until at the end of Jesus' life, and you have it recorded in your Bibles, in the end of the book of Luke, that when Jesus died on the cross, Nicodemus went from being in hiding to coming out and saying, I want the honor of helping to bury that man. And historians record Nicodemus became a strong, wholehearted follower of Jesus. Different from Peter. Now, Peter's story makes me cry. Whew, I'm too much like Peter. <laughs> Always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, you know, in the wrong way. You know, and so like when I was growing up, my parents were like, oh, Rick, why did you just, you didn't have to say that. My teachers always were out of my report cards, inclined to mischief. Say, talking talks too much. I guess that's why I'm a preacher. I just can't, and I just, you know what I'm saying? And here's Peter. He's always doing and saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And people are like, Peter, shut up. Hope I can use the S word here. But the very first encounter Peter had with Jesus, he was fishing. You remember? He'd been out all night fishing. And he's bringing his boat in. And somebody from the you know, side says, hey, throw your nets on the other side. And Peter's like, what? We're worn out. And that's not how you fish. That's not how fishing works. And he's like, just throw your net on the other side. And he did. So many fish, the nets were breaking. 
And if you remember, he went and fell at Jesus' feet. And he said, get away from me. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I don't, people like me don't deserve to be around people like you. And he's like, Peter, today you're fishing for fish. But I'm going to transform you into fishing for men. Transforming the life of people. And over the next three years, Peter just soaked up everything that Jesus had. Still saying the wrong thing. Still doing the wrong thing. Always having to be corrected by Jesus. But he's, but he's got this desire to be different. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, he predicts, Peter, this event's coming up tonight. And you're not going to have the courage to walk through it. And you're going to deny me three times. Oh, no, 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 Lord. I've been with you a long time. There's no way that's going to happen. And sure enough, things get hectic. They take Jesus away. And in the middle of all of the noise, this little girl comes up and says, Hey, I know you. You're one of his followers. And he's like, oh, no, no, you got the wrong person. And three times, he denies that he knows Jesus. And as soon as the third time and the rooster crows, the Bible said Jesus looked at him. Peter was just, like he was, he couldn't handle it. And he ran. That's me. That's me. Whew. Man, I remember just getting caught and not knowing what to do. And so I just ran. I ran to a different state. I ran to a place I didn't even know where I was going. But God is so good because he goes before you. He will find you. It's just so amazing that you think you're running away from God and you get to that place and you find out God's been there waiting for you the whole time. And if you remember, after Jesus' resurrection, he sees Peter early in the morning. Peter had run away and run back to fishing. He's out in a boat. He'd been fishing all night. He hadn't caught a thing. And he hears his voice. Hey! Throw your nets on the other side. And he wants to say, that's not how you fish. But he recognized the voice. Man, he couldn't stand it. Took off his coat, jumped in the water, got to the shore. And there's this awkward moment. He doesn't know what to say, but Jesus just embraces him. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, well, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I at least like you. I know you like me, Peter, but, but Peter, do you love me? I don't know. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. Peter, do you even like me? Oh, Lord, you know all things, and you know I like you. With everything I have, I like you. And Jesus said, I got a job for you. Your name has been Simon, but it's now going to be a rock. You're going to, I need you to go feed my sheep. I need you to go lead this new movement called the way. You need to lead people into my kingdom. 
And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and Peter stands in front of thousands of people and he says, you crucified the Son of God. But if you'll believe, he'll transform your life like he did mine. And 3,000 people that day said yes to the hope that Jesus would change them too. Peter emerged different than who he was before, didn't he? I don't know where God's going to find you. The unique thing to me in all of these stories is God found all of them in a different place. Jacob was in a foreign land. Esther was in a palace. Gideon was in a basement. Zacchaeus was in a tree in a house full of sinners. You know, and Nicodemus was on a quiet street in the middle of the night. And Peter was out fishing. Where did he find you? Where did God find you? And have you emerged from that encounter transformed? He's calling you, you know. He's calling you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you'll just open up, God's waiting to change you. So on the back of your outline, I just have four things. I just want to read these four qualities of wholehearted followers. These people who emerged from this time with God, and that really is the, the, the message of today, that he's waiting for you, and as you emerge, will you be transformed? If so, it shows itself in these ways. Number one, they, they forget the past and they move forward. And out of this verse of Scripture in Philippians, Paul says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. He's like, man, I, you're no longer bound by what held you back in the past. You're no longer identified. You're no longer defined. You're, you're no longer known as who you were. God has changed you. Now, I remember all my past. I think it's a good thing so that I don't repeat it. But I'm not defined by my past. God no longer holds that against me. I've been transformed in the name of Jesus, and so have you. And so when you emerge, forget your past. And sometimes it's the hardest thing for you to do. I can't forget. I can't forget. But it keeps you a slave. Let it go. And let God free you. Number two, they don't withhold anything. People who emerge different, they, they, they say, my job is not my job. It belongs to God. My talent's not my talent. God gave it to me. My money's not my money. It all came from God. Everything I have belongs to God. And so in Acts chapter 2, all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had, sold their property and possessions, shared the money with everyone in need. It doesn't belong to me. God, they stopped saying no. They started saying yes to God in everything. What would that be like if you stopped telling God no? Just trusted him, which is number three. Take risk with complete trust in God. These people took incredible risk. This verse of scripture in Esther chapter four is what I've already talked to you about when she said go and pray and fast. 
and I'll do the same, and then I'm going to emerge, and I'm going to take a risk. I'm willing to give up my life if that's what God is wanting me to do. And I don't know what God is calling you to do. I don't know how much of a risk it is to stand at your work and say, I'm no longer going to do that because it's not right or it's unethical. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to act this way anymore or talk this way or be this kind of person. I'm going to, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to take a leap of faith and live the way God has called me to live. And then finally, they count it joy to suffer for Christ. They count it joy. And this suffering is not always physical suffering. They count it joy to be worn out in the Lord. They count it joy to be stretched. Man, I didn't, I didn't even know that I had the capacity to do what God's calling me to do. But they stopped saying no. In James 1, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any time come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Because at the end of that at the end of that road is a huge reward. And so I just put this question at the bottom of your sheet. What needs to happen for you to be a wholehearted follower of Christ? Where is he going to find you? How is he going to transform you? Have you found that secret place, that quiet place where you've just rested in the Lord? And as you emerge from that place, do you believe that he's going to transform you to do something in his name for his glory and his honor, to his praise? I want to be transformed, don't you? 